Welcome to Nordic by Nature, a podcast inspired by the Norwegian philosopher Arne Ness, who coined the term deep ecology. According to Ness's interpretation of Spinoza, happiness is best realized through living life to the full out in the world. But other philosophies suggest a life of contemplation is the path to enlightenment, the ultimate happiness. In a way, it is this struggle for balance of our inner values and desires with our external actions and reactions that makes the search for happiness a lifelong process rather than a destination. You will now hear from two guests who have dedicated their careers to understanding the relationship of values to our behavior and how a sense of well-being has a direct impact on the wider world around us. First, you will hear from Tim Kasser, currently professor of psychology at Knox College in Galesburg, Illinois, USA. Tim has performed extensive research on materialism, values, well-being, and environmental sustainability, among other topics. In 2018, he collaborated with the cartoonist Larry Gonick to create a graphic book called Hypercapitalism, the Modern Economy, Its Values, and How to Change Them. You will then hear from Dr. Karma Ura, President of the Center of Bhutan and Gross National Happiness Studies, located in Bhutan's capital city, Timpu. Gross National Happiness offers a framework of criteria for policymaking and all kinds of human activity, including that of companies and corporations. The center has a mandate to research Bhutan's gross national happiness, culture and history of Bhutan and policy-related studies. So my name is Tim Kasser. I'm a professor of psychology at Knox College, which is in Galesburg, Illinois, uh, United States. And I've been studying people's values and goals and how they relate to well-being and ecological damage and other kinds of things for about 30 years now. At the time that I started to move into the ecological work, I had already been doing a lot of work on people's values and goals and how they related to their own personal well-being, as well as to some social outcomes. And then a guy named Kirk Brown actually approached me and said, well, what about ecological stuff? So we did a study together around the year 2000, actually, where we began to look at how people's values and goals related to ecological outcomes. So people's ecological footprints and their ecological attitudes and behaviors. That really sparked my interest, and so I started to do more work in that realm. From psychology's perspective, there's all this focus on well-being, but pretty much the focus is on how happy is this person, how not depressed is that person, how satisfied with life is this person. But there's relatively little, comparatively, about well-being involves living well in a way that doesn't damage other people's opportunity to live well and doesn't damage other species' opportunities to live well and doesn't damage future generations' opportunities to live well. If we really want to understand well-being, we have to get beyond, I guess, what you would call the user there or what psychologists would talk about with regard to personal well-being and we really need to focus on social and ecological well-being as well. One of the major things that you would hear from politicians and others was that we can't focus too much on the environment because that will decrease people's well-being because they'll have to give up X and give up Y and give up Z. 
And so what we really tried to do, and we were, I think, the first people to do, was to set out to test that idea. So is it the case that psychological well-being and ecological well-being are incompatible, or might they actually be compatible? And so in two studies, we measured people's personal well-being, so their life satisfaction, their experience of pleasant and unpleasant emotions. And then we also measured their ecological footprints and their ecological attitudes and behaviors. And what we found was that actually in both samples, personal and ecological well-being were positively correlated. That is, happier people tended to also be living more ecologically sustainable lifestyles. And I'll say a little bit more about that finding from the Brown and Kasser study, but I want to note that Two years ago, I did a summary of the literature on that, and it turns out that that finding that personal well-being and ecological well-being are positively associated has now been replicated about 15 or 20 times in other samples cross-culturally with lots of different kinds of measures of well-being, with lots of different ways of measuring environmental behavior as well. It does seem to be a rather robust relationship that Kirk and I discovered back in 2000. The other thing that Kirk and I were interested in is what is it that allows personal and ecological well-being to be positively correlated? You know, what are are the psychological mechanisms which allow those two things to go in concert with each other? We looked at three different possibilities, all of which had some data to support them. The first one, which was the thing I'd been studying for quite a while, was people's values. What we found was that part of why people who are happy are also living more sustainably is that they focus on values for their own personal growth and their own connection to other people and helping the world. And they focus less on values like making a lot of money, having a lot of possessions, having the right image, being popular, all those values encouraged by consumer capitalism. So one of the reasons that people can be both happy and sustainable is if their values orient them in a certain way, the natural outcome of a focus on those intrinsic values, we call them instead of the materialistic values, is to be happier and is to live more sustainably. A variable that Kirk had been studying for some time, which is called mindfulness, Kirk was one of the early people in psychology to really look at mindfulness, which is the ability to be with one's thoughts in the moment in a non-judgmental way. And so again, what we found was that people who were more mindful were also living more sustainably and happier at the same time. So there's something about mindfulness which conduces towards both of those kinds of well-being outcomes. And then the third thing we looked at was uh, was lifestyle. So probably heard of the idea of downshifting or voluntary simplicity where people decide that they're going to no longer buy into the normal work and spend lifestyle, um, but instead live a simpler life. And so in our study, we had 400 people, 200 of whom were simplifiers and 200 of whom were mainstream Americans. And again, what we found was that those who were voluntary simplifiers were more likely to be both happy and to be living more sustainably. Now, that was actually the weakest of the three factors compared to mindfulness and values, but it certainly did seem to matter. So that was essentially what we found. And for us, that's a pretty hopeful message. What it suggests is there are things people can do in their own lives, their lifestyles, with their values, with uh, their mental practices, which can conduce towards both happiness and sustainability. And it shows that all those messages telling us that we have to sacrifice and give stuff up in order to have a sustainable world, that that's actually doesn't appear to be true. And that's one of the things we found, actually, was that all three of those variables we were just talking about were kind of related to each other. So People who are more mindful tended to have more intrinsic values and to be less materialistic. And people who were voluntarily simplifying their lives also tended to have more intrinsic values and to be less materialistic. 
There's kind of a grouping of a way of life, if you will, that I think kind of stems from what people think is important or what people think is not so important that can then lead us to practice our lives in certain ways to make certain choices, which have these real important consequences for people's own personal well-being, but also for how they treat other people on the planet. The intrinsic values are values for things like your own personal growth, for family, and for helping the world be a better place. The extrinsic materialistic values are things for money, image, status. And one of the things that we've learned in the last 10 or 12 years about those values is that they stand in a dynamic opposition with each other. They're in a kind of a tension with each other. I've used the metaphor for a lot of years of a seesaw you know, that children's playground, you know, you sit on it, one end goes up and the other end goes down. The same happens with these values. The more that people focus on those intrinsic values, the less they tend to care about the materialistic values. But the more they care about materialistic values, the less they care about the intrinsic values. So one of the things that we've done a lot over the last few years is to do studies where we activate momentarily in people's minds one or another set of values, and then we see what happens to the other values. So if we get you thinking about money, for example, what the research shows is that you'll care more about money-related things and image-related things, and you'll care less about helping other people. But if we get you thinking about intrinsic values momentarily— then you'll care about more things like the environment and helping other people, and you'll care less about things like money and status and power. What research suggests is that an awareness of nature probably be one way of activating those intrinsic values, of building up that part of the human value system and getting people more and more focused on intrinsic values, which is good in and of itself, But it's also good because what it will do will be to suppress those more materialistic values because of the way that the human value system is organized. As you get people thinking about nature and being more and more aware and caring about nature, that's going to build up the intrinsic values, which will then suppress the more materialistic values. And there's research which actually supports this. There was a study by Netta Weinstein. She exposed people to pictures of nature or pictures of man-made things, human-made things. And then she measured how immersed people became in those pictures. And then she measured their values afterwards. And what she found was that if you gave people pictures of nature and the people became immersed in those, then what happened was their intrinsic values went up and their materialistic values went down compared to if you showed them pictures of nature and they didn't get immersed, or if you showed them pictures of human-made objects. That makes perfect sense from the value research that we've done, because essentially she's kind of activated those more intrinsic values, which is going to suppress the more materialistic values. WWF Scotland, probably 10 or 12 years ago, did something called, I think it was called the Natural Change Project. Essentially, what they did was they found a bunch of leaders in the business, political, artistic world who didn't seem actually to care very much about, it's not that they dissed nature or didn't care about nature, but like their lives weren't organized around trying to improve the environment. That's not what they were up to. That wasn't their main gig. And so for over the next six months or year or so like that, they took these individuals and they did a whole variety of deep echo psychology kinds of um, interventions, which, if memory serves, culminated with a dawn to dusk solo sitting time in wild nature. So people would go out and they would sit down in one spot and basically stay there until it got dark by themselves for, you know, 12 hours or whatever. And, you know, if you read the reports that were coming out of that natural change project and what you found was that as people were reflecting on what all of that experience meant to them, 
they saw that things like money and status and didn't really matter to them so much more. What they really were more focused on was things like relationships and things like promoting the community and things like sustainability. And then we can expect that if we've really shifted people's values, that's going to have impacts later on in terms of specific behaviors that they engage in for a long, long time. We've got to intervene with businesses. You know, I think there's just no way around that. The issue, of course, is that if it's a publicly traded for-profit business, at least here in the United States, that means that it has to place shareholder value and profit as its primary concern. And as we just talked about with regard to the value conflicts, the more that you're focused on profit, the less you're going to care about the environment. And so when push comes to shove, if it's about making a choice that helps the environment or a choice that helps make profit, as long as you're on this publicly traded for-profit corporation model, you're going to hit that barrier. My recent book is called Hypercapitalism, the Modern Economy, Its Values, and How to Change Them. It's a cartoon book, actually, and my co-author slash illustrator is a guy named Larry Gonick. Cartoon Me is the narrator. I think at this point, I do think there's a lot of excitement in terms of what's happening in, in the business arena. There's a lot of interesting, cool models out there about alternative ways to organize businesses so that you don't hit that barrier around profit. So if you look at worker co-ops, if you look at benefit corporations, if you look at all kinds of other models, you can start to see ways in which big organizations can try to focus both on profit and on things like sustainability and social justice. Capitalism is a particular economic system, and we could talk about what it entails, but I think what's what happened after World War II, and then especially in the late 70s and early 80s in North America and in Europe, was there was a real shift towards a more extreme form of capitalism than was in place before, you know, and I think that that's when you have globalization coming in, that's when you have much more pushes towards privatization. You see a huge rise in consumerism at that time because you've got modern advertising coming out via all different sorts of media, especially the television. And then you have a lot of deregulation, which occurs in many of these countries as well where government steps back and says, go at it, business, you know, do whatever you can do to maximize economic growth. And so this fetishism of economic growth and of buying stuff and of money making and profit and all of the rest really began an era where I don't think we were in capitalism anymore. I think we had moved on to a, a more extreme version of capitalism that by putting all of these materialistic values at the forefront began to suppress even more and more and more values like equality, values like caring about the environment, etc. And indeed, it's around that time when you start to see work hours go back up, you start to see indices of inequality go up, you really start to see lack of movement on a lot of environmental issues. So that's how we understand hypercapitalism. It's a term that's been around and invented by somebody else. It definitely seems apt to start to talk about what is the political, economic, social system that we find ourselves under in much of the world at this point. If you take a look at neoliberalism, its fundamental tenets are tenets of deregulation, privatization, and globalization. You need to have government back off. You need to have things as globalized as possible in terms of production and sales. 
you, you again need to get the government government out of the lawmaking business as much as possible, so not regulating businesses, and you need to turn over as many government functions as possible to the private sector, supposedly because the private sector's motive for profit will make it more efficient and then give everybody better products and better services. So I think fundamentally that's the idea of neoliberalism. A lot of that emerges out of the post-World War II destruction and the Cold War, the rise of the Chicago School of Thought with regard to economics in particular. I think when you really see it hit home is when Reagan and Thatcher are in charge. Early 80s, that's when you start to see neoliberalism become dominant in lots and lots of ways. And that's when you start to then see the expansion into a hyper-capitalist society. The fundamental faith of neoliberalism, if you will, you know, that if you turn things over to the invisible hand of the free market and you get government out of the way, then good things will happen. That is the fundamental faith state of neoliberalism. But I would argue it is a faith statement. Don't get me wrong. Capitalism has been remarkably successful in doing what it sets out to do, which is to provide a whole lot of products at relatively cheap prices for a whole lot of people and to create a great deal of wealth. By its own terms, capitalism has been remarkably successful. But if you care about equality, or if you care about sustainability, or if you care about authenticity and well-being, which are things capitalism doesn't claim to care about, by the way, then you have to really question capitalism. And again, here's where we're back to that fundamental value dynamic. You know, the more and more you focus your lives and organizations and society and political structures around maximizing wealth and consumption, you've activated and encouraged those extrinsic values. And as a result, you care less and suppress those intrinsic values for things like equality and sustainability and all of the rest. If we can trust all of the data we're getting, we know that things are headed down the wrong road. And so we can either throw up our hands or we can start to develop alternative models. What we have to do is to start developing those alternatives and really work on them and, and figure them out so that we can try to prevent the bad things from happening, if that's still possible. And if it's not possible, then when the bad things do happen, we can say, hey, try this, not that. Here's the place where I think that the Nordic nations and then the Northern European nations as well, you know, Denmark and the Netherlands and Germany have been real leaders, have really pushed to develop these alternative models, to develop alternative practices, to try to make some changes at a structural levels and in lifestyle levels to show it's possible. And again, I would go back to where we started our conversation a while back. What's also fascinating is that those are some of the happiest nations in the world. So, and you can argue about why that is, but the fact remains that these nations that are moving in these more sustainable ways also in study after study, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, and Finland and the Netherlands are oftentimes among the happiest nations in the world. It's actually a pretty short period of time that we've been under globalization in the scope of human history. You know, so it's been 40 years. That's a blip in this course of history. What we know is that when people focus on intrinsic values, they focus less on materialistic values. They're happier. They act in more pro-social ways. And they live in more ecologically sustainable ways. Fundamentally, at base, the solution is actually fairly simple. How do we orient our personal lives, our businesses, our communities, and our governments around intrinsic values rather than extrinsic values? Because what all the evidence suggests is that if we can do that, materialism will become less important, people will be happier, people will treat each other more nicely, and people will treat the planet more nicely. 
Now, how to get from here to there is a different issue. But at least the thing that makes me optimistic is that there is a there I can see. There is a there that I can see and that I can understand and that makes sense theoretically from what I know as a psychologist. It has empirical data behind it. It actually is very consistent with almost every spiritual and philosophical tradition which has been around in the history of humanity. And there are people doing it now. There are people who are living these ways now. If any listener is out there who, who thinks these ideas are valid, I would encourage you to work at your city level first to get engaged in the city and try to change your city. Because I think that cities are where people live. And so they, they have their experiences there. If you can make something work at a city, it provides a model that you can say to another city or to a province or to the federal government, hey, but it worked here. It worked here. Let's try it in another place and try it in another place. Working at that local level is, is fundamental and our best shot. and I'm presently the president of the Center for Bhutan and Gross National Happiness Studies. It is an autonomous government-sponsored think tank, and it is located in Thimpu, the capital of Bhutan. We have mandate to conduct research on gross national happiness, policy background studies, and culture. My background is in economics and philosophy at the master's level, and a PhD in uh, international development. So all of my life, professional life, 30 years now, has been devoted to alternative development, its indicators and statistics on one side, and Buddhist philosophy, literature, and fine arts on the other. Incidentally, I am also a painter and I design lots of artifacts and performances. I also design currency for Bhutan. I have painted the murals of a whole temple and also designed a national festival, which is held on 13 December every year. The idea of development is usually introduced from outside. It is uh, very much uh, based on idea of industrialization and expansion of the economy. Alternative development is, in some sense, indigenous ideas about how we should transform our societies. If you have certain ideas about transformation, 
of society, different destination goals, and that would qualify as alternative development. Goal in this context in Bhutan, it would be happiness of the people. The goals of development in the case of Bhutan involves nine domains of gross national happiness. A living standard is only one of the nine goals of development. So the others are uh, health, education, and living standards. These are uh, fairly well-known ones and followed everywhere else also. And slightly new ones are uh, good governance, environment or ecological resilience, and cultural diversity and resilience. So that comes to six. But I think the last three are fairly on the frontier of development. And these are psychological well-being, community vitality, and balanced time use over 24 hours. So I think uh, we consider these nine domains of gross national happiness as cause and conditions of happiness. It was first explicitly coined in 1979 by the fourth king of Bhutan. His name is uh, Jigmi Singhe Wangchu. Now, for some time, it was uh, realized through legislation and policies of the government led by him. But in 2008, Bhutan became a parliamentary democracy. Since then, governments have been elected through universal franchise, you know. Constitution was also adopted, and the constitution obliges the government to pursue quantitative framework of cross-national happiness to guide the politicians and bureaucrats to the long-term goals of cross-national happiness. 2006, we adopted the concepts of nine domains of cross-national happiness, and along with it, We were directed by the fifth king of Bhutan. He commanded the creation of Gross National Happiness Index in 2006. So since then, we have had a quantitative framework of gross national happiness. I think we have to be clear uh, when we talk about happiness, how the measurement is laid out and what it measures and on what the ranking of the nations are based. So, as you know very well, the Nordic countries come on top in the ranking based on subjective well-being. And that is a very narrow measure. I think we have to clarify a lot because they are not so clear about the international comparison and ranking. The World Happiness Report, I would like to emphasize, is based on a very narrow measurement. Ours is more comprehensive and broader much more probing about the reality and what human beings are, you know. They need not just income, they need simultaneously many other aspects. In ecological terms, the leadership and achievement of Bhutan is, I think, quite significant in the world. It has maintained 72% forest coverage, it is carbon negative, It is extremely biodiverse. Quality of life with respect to healthy environment is very high in Bhutan. Amongst the nine domains of cross-national happiness, one of them is ecological diversity and resilience. And government of Bhutan has been led by the leadership of the kings to maintain a very high environmental quality so that People's welfare, which is dependent uh, intimately with the quality of environment, is also very high. I think contribution of Bhutan to the global climate change and environmental preservation is unusually high, I think. At the moment, 72% of the surface area of Bhutan is forest covered. 52% of the country is preserved as a protected nature. Bhutan is carbon negative. Most of its energy is supplied by hydroelectricity. So it's a very green energy. And people in their daily life has access to nature. I think sometimes size and scale impresses people. But the ideals and the goals that are enshrined in that uh, report 
the United Nations Global Assessment Report released on 6th May 2019 are all met by Bhutan. All its ideals, all its goals, conclusions uh, would have been met by Bhutan in the field of environment uh, and climate change and biodiversity. But uh, Bhutan is uh, fairly small to have a global impact. But nevertheless, what it does on a per capita basis is extremely outstanding. Bhutan as a country has taken extraordinary burden for the sake of global climate and biodiversity. The nine domains of gross national happiness are psychological well-being, that is emotional and spiritual aspects of well-being. Community vitality, since we are social by nature, companionship and good relations are at the forefront of well-being. So community vitality, time use, that means nobody should run out of time to do things that are vital to well-being and happiness. We have to have some freedom over our own time, over 24 hours. Ecological resilience and diversity, cultural diversity and resilience, good governance, education, health, and standard of living. So these are nine domains. I listed them separately, but in reality, they are highly interdependent. And so it is important to see them in relation to each other rather than in isolation. I think it is uh, relevant to any place where there are human beings and other sentient beings. That would take us into the question of how the indicators are constructed and how the indicators are used as benchmark in national planning in Bhutan. Poverty is a minimal definition of well-being. It is a survival definition of well-being. It's not really well-being. And happiness is a maximal concept of well-being and achievable. So in Bhutan, definition of happiness in terms of nine domains is related to measurement. We construct a single number GNH index and 33 sub-indicators of GNH. Together, they use about 130 different variables. So now you can see the distinction of GNH measurement against poverty or subjective well-being. Both are based on a narrow measure of well-being. To simplify things, if an individual were to achieve a perfect score in GNH index, he or she would have to have 130 variables or 130 achievements. And these 130 variables are drawn from nine domains of GNH, you know. I'm very familiar with the World Happiness Report. United Nations World Happiness Report is an outcome of a Bhutanese initiative. The government of Bhutan organized a UN high-level expert meeting in April 2012 in the United Nations in New York. It made two recommendations at that time. One was that governments around the world should make happiness and well-being a focus of their public policy. That was the first recommendation. And the second one was that United Nations should declare a World Happiness Day. So both were implemented. As a result of this uh, high-level meeting in the United Nations, World Happiness Report came into being, led by John Halliwell and Jeffrey Sachs. One of the characteristics of the GNH index and its 33 sub-indicators is that it can be disaggregated at any level to the nth level of variable or nth level of the individual. So you can disaggregate the achievements across all domains or subdomains by gender. And so you can then see that using GNH indicators as a sort of lens, policy can be targeted. Uh, where there is a gender differences, discrepancies, or age-specific discrepancies, or geography-specific discrepancies, 
this can be picked up so neatly by the indicators, which is based on a national survey conducted every four years. Social and economic planning is done for five years at a time. So our gross national happiness survey is done in fourth year. And the results are fed into the five-year plan as benchmarks, targets, policy focus areas. We can measure by experiential outcomes such as emotions, health, happiness scores, etc. Or you can measure by means. In terms of happiness, I must say there is a gender difference. The population of women in this country scores slightly less but it is not very significant at 95% confidence, but there is a slight uh, discrepancy. However, this distinction between men and women in the attainment of happiness disappears above 50. So the performance on the happiness scale is lower for women if we compare women and men below the age of 50. The important thing is reproductive health is playing a role. So, therefore, the government taking this strengthened maternity and child health and gave a long maternity leave of one year, out of which six, six months is paid. We have only seven days of paternity leave here. The elevation of domestic chores and the social care burden, which fell traditionally on women, is one of the very big programs in Bhutan. So the introduction of cooking facilities, introduction of electricity, introduction of supply, all are taken on free basis here in this country, totally free. Electricity up to 100 units is free for rural areas. Water, health, education, and so many other essential things are also free. Education is free. Bhutan is a country which escaped colonization. It's one of the very few countries in the world to have been that fortunate. This means that the continuity of ideas of what a nation should be or what human being aspires have not been smashed by any external ideas. So the continuity of institutions and ideas have been able to survive in this country. Bhutan has continued to be a Buddhist and ecological welfare state. Because of its adherence to Buddhist welfare and ecological state, free market ideas cannot take complete dominance here. That is why so far global corporations have not been able to intrude very much. Bhutanese foreign direct investment rules are very strict. Environmental and cultural bars are very high here. Those who are just hunting for profit, it's not very easy to come into Bhutan. Last year, at the direction of the Bhutanese government, Center for Bhutan and GNH Studies developed GNH business certification. Assessment will be applied to all corporations and businesses in future. For a long time, corporate social responsibility was uh, the end all of business. But the shortcoming in CSR is that it does not require uh, the businesses how they should make money. It is how they dispose a certain small proportion of their profit. After that, a new model is uh, benefit corporations, B Corps. But GNH business certification is much more advanced in my opinion because it applies the nine domains to a corporation now in a very explicit way. GNH index and 33 indicators is designed for governance purpose. Derived from gross national happiness, nine domains is the GNH policy screening tool that the government applies to formulate and pass every policy of the government. So for example, 15 policies have undergone GNH policy screening out of 22 policies so far. 
next year in March 2020, we will be having an international conference in Parma, Italy. One day will be on GNH business certification. Bhutan also has a very modest tourism policy. For most for us as a society is that nothing should step beyond our environmental, ecological capacity and our cultural carrying capacity. So because of that, we limit the number of tourists. It is not to maximize profit. It is only an activity that should be consistent with the carrying capacity of the country. A large part of the country is not opened, and Western Bhutan is already receiving close to its carrying capacity. So we are slowing down tourism to limit numbers in Western part of the Bhutan, in line with the infrastructure capacity, environmental carrying capacity, and cultural carrying capacity. For example, if a Buddhist festival in a village can take only 100 tourists, we should limit tourists to 100 only. The input and output only take certain amount of throughput which you can digest. So if the environment cannot digest, then we should put a threshold on the number. Idea of sustainability is really linked to idea of threshold. We have to have certain limit in the size of activity, size of industry, size of the sector. You should not let it balloon out of ecological context. Food industry, fashion industry, uh, all are uh, expanding and swallowing up the whole non-marketed areas also. You know, we, we should put a distinction between what is good to put under market and what should be left out of market. So many things about culture should be under non-market. A lot of things about happiness uh, and well-being is dependent on non-market exchange, not market exchange. The reciprocity of time to give social and emotional support, cultural work, social work, they have used value on its own, not exchange value. Culture and community comes under that kind of non-market transactions, rather reciprocity, one should say. And in the psychological well-being domain, it's equally important now with the plague of mental health problems around the world, you know. So we need, we need devices in terms of indicators to check on the level of positive emotions across the population, like compassion, generosity, calmness, forgiveness, contentment, or conversely, you know, we need a measurement amongst the population, the distribution of negative things like anger, jealousy, fear, worry, sadness, you know, uh, we need to know more about it. People may be seething with um, negative emotions, although it is not showing up in the GDP. Government needs to know the interior world of citizens, how they feel in the spectrum of negative and positive emotions. Advanced uh, warning uh, mechanism should be there to know the emotional state of the people. If you do not, then the only way to express these latent things will be through vote, which will be seized by polarizing politicians. That's not healthy. That's not healthy. Before it lands in the lap of radicalizing politicians, scientists, psychiatrists, social scientists needs to know, planners need to know, so that we can address them. At this moment, we are almost at the end of developing urban happiness framework. So the very mere fact whether they are living in a city which is uh, adverse to their happiness is become very important. And uh, it seems that most of the people will live now in urban sites. We have decided to work on, on this uh, development of a urban happiness framework in the domains of culture, ecology, and community vitality. They are surging ahead in terms of two areas living standard, education, division is emerging in the country between those who live in rural areas and urban areas. Now we want to reduce this gap. We can assess the current state of city planning and we can also guide city planning.
the detailed arrangement of the urban planning that is sensitive to well-being and happiness has become urgent, really urgent. It's a structural issue. Thank you for listening to this episode of Nordic by Nature on happiness. You can find more information on our guests and a transcript of this podcast on imaginarylife.net slash podcast. We are also on Patreon if you would like to support us with a donation to keep this podcast going into a second series. Please see patreon.com slash nordicbynature. The music and sound has been designed by Diego Losa. You can find him on diegolosa.blogspot.com. The music you heard with Dr. Kama Ora's voice was composed by Kama Ora himself. Please help us by sharing a link to this episode with the hashtag Traces of North and follow us on Instagram at Nordic by Nature Podcast. If you are interested in nature-centered mindfulness, please see foundnature.org to read about the Foundation for the Contemplation of Nature. You can follow the Foundation on Facebook and on Contemplation of Nature on Instagram. We'd love to hear your thoughts on our podcast, so please don't hesitate to email me, Tanya, on nordicbynature at gmail.com. Hey,